All right, y'all. Um, so what are we going to do? I just want to give you a brief kind of like anticipatory, like what's happening. But this is going to be our last sermon on stories from the dark. So this is the last in the series. And then we're going to pick up. I'm going to do this two years in a row. So don't fall out of your seats. Don't faint. An Advent series. Yes, yes, those of you that know my background and know my journey here, I'm not a real fan of Advent sermons because we hear them all the time and it's, they get harder and harder for preachers to actually do them year after year because it's the same text. But I feel like because this year has been so crazy that it would be nice maybe to just have a normal like Advent series again. Wouldn't you like that? So we're going to do that. And then what will we do after? I'm still not sure. I told you that I was, before everything hit, we were going to do the stories that Jesus tells. And we we're going to look at the, the parables of Jesus. And, and I was like on fire for that when I came back, right? Uh, but it, it, it's losing its grip on me. So I don't know what that means. But I do know that God moves through you, he moves through me, he moves through his instruments, and right now I'm not feeling it, so I'm not sure if we're going to do that. But other things are starting to boil to the surface. It could be another book of the Bible. Uh, it will always be expository, but I'm not sure what route we're going to go yet. So I'll, I'll let you know, hopefully, as, as you pray, because I know you pray for me, would you pray that during the season of Advent, God makes it clear what's next, and that it would hit home. Because um, you want the one that's handling the scriptures to actually be gripped by them, correct? Yes, amen. So, um, I'm not going to preach on Leviticus. That's just not going to happen this time around. Maybe next year. You can pray for me. Maybe like in five years I could be gripped by Leviticus. Pray that way. I would love to be gripped by Leviticus. All right, so Interlaken, Switzerland. Anybody been there? Oh, my word. Steve, you've been there? Holy cow. Anybody else been there? John, you've been to Interlaken, Switzerland? Oh, man, they sent you to a nice place. Okay. So Interlaken, Switzerland is where Nancy and I fell in love. I know. I know. Can you imagine the Alps and then beautifully glacier-cut Interlaken lakes as the romantic playground for 10 days? Can you imagine? I mean, if you can't get a girl to love you there, you just need to go into the monastery. That's all I'm saying. It just needs to happen. Can you imagine fresh air, fresh air after five months of breathing dirt in the Soviet Union? Fresh air for long romantic walks, long romantic bike rides in this beautiful, beautiful place. Can you imagine fresh food and drink after eating kasha with the flies for five months in the Soviet Union? In buildings, in buildings that are hundreds of years older than the United States. I mean, long, relaxed, romantic conversation. Man, ah, I mean, just even thinking about it, it's like interlocking. Man, what a place. What a place. It's also the place that I experienced primal fear. 
Of course, I had experienced up to that point, and after that point, to this day, I have experienced the fear of failure, just like everyone else. The fear of not being enough, the fear of shame. Of course, I've experienced the fear of man, of not being enough before others, right? The fear of rejection and disapproval. Of course, I've experienced it before interlocking and after interlocking. And of course, I've experienced the fear of pain and loss. Of course, personally, relationally, I've experienced that. Circumstantially, of course, I'm not talking about those kinds of fears. And so you're asking, so Jeff, what kind of fear are you talking about? Without going into detail, because it's loaded with mystery, I don't fully understand it, and because I don't want to unnecessarily scare you, and some of you are thinking, that's too late, I'm talking about experiencing primal evil, intelligent celestial evil, alone in an interlocking hotel room, late one night. What happened? It's happened one other time, uh, and Nancy and I were together for that one. So at least I had a partner. What happened was I was alone in fear in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Before the craziness of 2020, mental health experts were already calling the 2000s what? You know it. The age of anxiety, right? So before the craziness that we just hit, mental health experts were already saying that fear is wrecking everybody. Fear is wrecking you. Fear is wrecking me. Fear is wrecking relationships. Fear is wrecking kids. Fear is wrecking our educational system. Fear is wrecking institutions. Fear is wrecking our culture. Fear is wrecking job performance. Fear is wrecking communities. Fear is wrecking institutions. Fear is wrecking cities. Fear is wrecking the culture. And that was before the craziness of 2020. Anxiety is just a sterilized word for fear. It just sounds nicer, right? It just sounds a little more cleansed, or it just puts a little more distance between what the word really means. It means that we live in an age of fear. If we didn't know it before, we all know that now. So this is our last sermon, as I said, from Stories from the Dark. So we've looked at Alone in the Dark with Jacob. We've looked at Alone in the Ashes with Job. We've looked at Alone in Abuse with the Apostle Paul. We've looked at Alone in Sin with Rahab. We looked at Alone with Mission, Alone in Mission with Gideon. And today's Alone in Fear, Gideon Part 2. So How? <laughs> How do you survive fear? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We will be reading Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubal, or Jerubal, which is interesting, that is Gideon, that means he was named after Baal, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hero Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Now, therefore, proclaim, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Listen, who's ever fearful, who's ever trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, right? These are the fearful people. And 10,000 lied. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, this one shall go with you. Anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, all right, look, everyone who laps the water, do you know how many, like, credible academic journals have tried to decide what this means? Like, resolve this, like, okay, there's a real God reason for why he chose one over the other. There's not. There's absolutely not. Uh, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Shame on them. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go to every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. <laughs> Who brings trumpets to war? And sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels. Now this is the first historical documentation of camels being weaponized for warfare. So you need to think these are the first tanks, okay, were without number. As, as sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He just happens to come along 135,000 men and finds this one dude that had a bad dream. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a keg of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, Oh man, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now let's jump down to 21. This is the actual battle. You ready? Here it is. It's happening. What's happening Every man stood in his place around the camp. These are the Israelites. And they watched all the army run. They cried, the army, and fled. And then if you look at 22, I probably should have read that. They blew the 300 trumpets, and all of a sudden the Lord said, every man's sword against himself. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us your word. And we thank you that you are personally, actively present in your word. And so, we seek you. We seek you now in your word. Oh, Jesus, 
show up, producing change on the spot. We pray in your name, amen. Let's say, the question is what? How? How do you survive fear? How do I survive fear? How do we survive fear? I want you to notice that Israel's camped in a scary place, literally camped in a scary place. If you find verse 1, look at the word Herod. Do you see that? Herod actually means trembling. So Israel is camped at the spring of trembling. So Israel is, we could say, in camp fear. They're in camp fear. Of course they are. Because if you look north from Camp Fear, all right, here we are. If you're in Camp Fear with the Israelites, you look north, you see the hill of Moray. That's eight miles away. Now, between you and Moray is a valley called Jezreel, and it's eight miles of valley. And while you're looking at Hill Moray in this eight-mile valley called Jezreel, it is loaded with locusts, like sand on the sea. It's loaded with a massive primal enemy from the east. In the Bible, nothing good comes from the east. And the Midianites, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. Israel is trembling at Camp Fear. And so do you. Are you in Camp Fear right now? So how do you survive Camp Fear? Here's the question we got to ask of this text, though. Israel's looking out in camp fear to eight miles of fear, right? Who else is looking out at these eight miles of fear? Who else is looking upon this eight miles of locusts? Who else stands with Israel at camp fear and sees what Israel's up against? Who sees every drop of anxiety in every Israeli heart? And we know the answer to that, right? We know the answer. That The answer is God does. God actually sees what they're up against. God looks from Camp Fear with the rest of the Israelites on eight miles of a massive enemy like locusts. God sees every last dripping drop of human anxiety in every individual Israelite. He sees it all. So here's the question. What's he going to do about it? What is God going to do about your fear? What does God do when we're in camp fear? Well, the answer is how you survive fear, right? Whatever the answer is, whatever he does, okay, that's God's strategy for you and me to survive fear. So let's look at it. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. 22,000 soldiers, scared out of their minds, went home. The rest, as we just read, lied, 10,000 of them. Well, verse 4 continues God's strategy to survive fear. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and that's where you get that whole, oh, man, what does this mean or this? 
No matter how you look at what's happening here in God's strategy, it's absolutely insane. It's insanity. I mean, come on. First, there's two insane reasons here. First is this. Any normal, caring person tries to comfort fearful people. Don't you? When you come across a, a, a fearful person, don't you, as a normal, caring person, don't you try to comfort them? I always warn my girls to not see these kind of movies. I always warn my girls to, if you go see that movie, honey, it will scare you and you will have nightmares. I know you. I know the movie. And yes, I went and saw those movies when I was a kid too. But I'm telling you now is one on the other side. Don't go see those movies. They will scare the daylights out of you. Uh, but they would still what? They'd still go. And what would happen? They'd get scared out of their minds, right? Always happened. I could tell. I waited up for them. And when they got scared out of their minds, what did I do? <laughs> a normal, caring person. What would a normal, caring person do? What did I do? I say, you idiots. Is that what I would do? I would say, you idiots. I told you so. You're a loser. And by the way, I saw this creepy doll in your closet. No, I didn't do that. I might have wanted to do that. But their fear brought something else out of me. And so what did I do? I slept on their floor to their bedroom. We expect God to comfort Israel in their fear. Don't you expect? Every reader comes to this text and expects God to comfort them. But he makes it worse. He says, look, your army isn't too small. It's too big. What kind of God does that? Second, I have another objection to this text. Second, a healthy person, let's just say like a, a helpful person or a, a wise person, even a helpful, like if you're a constructive parent and you want your kids to pull themselves up by their bootstrap, whatever it is, if you just want them to be healthy and independent, or just a friend, what do you do to fearful people? You strengthen them. You strengthen them. You give strength to a, a fearful person, right? I mean, if you were to go right now and Google um, anxiety books, all of them are designed to give strength to the fearful person. Every single one of them. I defy you to give me one that doesn't do that. I shouldn't say defy you. I would challenge you. This is not David and Goliath. In chapter 8, we learn that the locust army is at a minimum 135,000 strong with tanks, right? They're weaponizing camels. So just a quick question as we move into this section. Who wins the collision between a human body and a camel. Okay, we got that one solved. Now, Israel starts out with 32,000 soldiers. This means that every Israelite soldier, foot soldier, must go, must kill 4.2 men, 4.2 men on tanks. Now, that's challenging, is it not? But it's doable. I mean, some of us would still take those odds. But God shrinks the army to 10,000 men. So he goes from 32,000 to 10,000. So now every Israelite soldier on foot must now kill 13.5 men on tanks. That's insane. Now remember, 
Each Israelite soldier is not pulling a trigger. They're yielding. They're swinging a sword. This is hand-to-hand combat. So this is like unspeakably violent. And it's bone-weary, exhausting, like into the cellular structure of your bones. Have you ever been fatigued like that? Every athlete hears this at least a thousand times. I I hope they still do. I mean, my coaches, man, everyone from my football coaches to my wrestling coaches to MMA coaches to uh, even when I played lacrosse, all coaches said this to me. Do they still say this? So kids, come up and talk to me because if they're not, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you and tell you and tell you if you want to be a competitive athlete. They always said fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. So let's just say Achilles is in the Israelite army. By the time he gets to the 13.5 person, he's already bone-weary exhausted. And remember, they're on tanks. (laughs) So when God shrinks the army again from 10,000 to 300, you can just see Gideon losing his mind. Can you see it? I mean, it's not even in the text. You can feel it. You just... The tension, the anxiety, the the fear levels are just like, oh, what are you doing? Right? So now 13.5 enemy soldiers per Israelite just went to 450 enemy soldiers per Israelite you must now kill. We expect God to increase Israel's strength in their fear, right? But he shrinks it. He shrinks their strength. Your army's not too small. It's too big. So how do you survive fear? Here's our first answer. How do you survive fear? Well, according to God, not by your strength. How do we survive fear then? Well, let's look at verse 2 again. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My hand has saved me. This is breathtaking. So how do you survive fear? Well, according to God, you survive fear by your weakness. Oh, don't miss this. According to God, you survive fear by your weakness connecting with God's strength. That's how you survive fear. Your weakness connecting with God's strength. Mm. Do you notice that God is so committed to Israel and so committed to you and so committed to communities and cities and the home and the church and culture, surviving fear that he whittles down your strength, that he makes you feel Feel your weakness. He makes you feel fear. Maybe the age of anxiety is God at work. Whittling down everyone's strength, making all of us feel reality which is we're weak. Why does he do this? Why is he so committed to this? 
Why is he so adamant about this? Why is he so lovingly personally involved in this? Because in your weakness, you connect to his strength. Don't miss God's reason for making you and me feel fear. Don't miss it. Don't miss his reason for whittling down Israel's strength to such a place that they are now like, oh my. Here's his reason. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So according to God, there's actually something worse than camp fear. There's actually something worse than a Malachite sword. There's actually something worse in the world than a pandemic. There's actually something worse in the world than culture wars. There's actually something worse And it's this, in the midst of our fear, or let's say at the resolution of our fear, let's say the pandemic ends and the culture war ends and the political turmoil ends and the stress you feel in your heart ends and the, the fears and the anxieties that you have right now relationally end. Let's say all of them get resolved, all of them end. Let's say it's a vaccine, let's say it's something. Here's the worst thing that could happen to us according to this text, that we actually think and we actually feel and we actually believe or what this text says, boast, takes all of that. Like we're boasting in our thinking, we're boasting in our feeling, we're boasting in our actions, we're boasting in our beliefs. I can do it. Or it gets resolved, I did it. God said that's the worst thing that could happen to you. Or maybe we do this, you know, we say things like, we're entering into, we're in the midst of our fear, we're at camp fear, and we say, my brains will save me, my brains will save us. Or then at the end of it, it gets resolved, we say, you know, my bravery saved us. Or maybe we do things like this, technology will save us. Right? Technology will save us. That's when we're in the middle of it. And then when it's over, we say, my money has saved us. Or maybe we say things like this as a culture. My views of social justice will save us. And then at the end, it gets resolved and all this thing goes away. And we say, my candidate has saved us. We're already here in that language. One preacher theologian said it this way, human nature is such that if there were the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. So what does God do? God loves us so much. God is so committed to us and so committed to us getting his strength that he whittles ours down. He makes us feel our weakness. He pushes you into fear and anxiety. In other words, he just kind of opens the door, pulls the curtain back, and lets you experience yourself. Reality. This is reality. You and I are poor and needy, the psalmist. You and I are weak. 
So where is God making you feel your weakness right now? That would be a really good question to start. Okay, where is God whittling me down right now? Where is God making me feel my fears and anxieties? Where is he making me feel my weaknesses? What is camp fear for you? Perhaps it's the pandemic. Perhaps it's uncertainty about your future. Or perhaps it's the anxiety you have for a child. Perhaps it's fill in the blank. Where You got it? Do you have that place? Here's what I want you to think about. You got this place that you're feeling your fears, you're feeling your anxieties, you're feeling your weakness. That place is where you connect with God's strength. That's the place. Isn't that breathtaking? That's life-changing right there. Watch what happens when you do. Do you see Gideon's weakness in verse 9? Look at, look at his weakness. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. That's option one. Arise, go down there now. Option one. But if you are afraid to go down, right? Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. That's option two. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Well, Gideon is afraid, so he opts for option two. Right? He goes down with Purah's servant. And that's where you got 135,000 soldiers in eight miles of a valley. They look like locusts, and they approach the camp right when someone has a nightmare and tells it to his buddy. And his buddy looks at him and says, that's your nightmare? And he turns to him and says, we're toast, we're doomed, it's over. 300 men on a little hill, 135,000 on camels, and these folks are now saying, we're done. Now watch what happens when Gideon's weakness connects with God's strength. Watch it, here it comes. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He experienced God. He experienced God's great personal love for him in Israel. He experienced a grace that was so unperformed and so unconditioned and so relentless and so extravagant and so stunning. He just worshipped. It keeps going, though. Not only did he worship, but look what he does. He returns to the camp of Israel and says, okay, dudes, get up. It's time. <laughs> Fear. Fear is replaced with courage. Fear is replaced with action. Fear is replaced with God's strength. Fear is replaced with God. So, what do we do? Well, I guess we're supposed to, like, connect our weakness to God's strength. Connect your fear to God's strength. And we're all going, okay, that's good, that's good. Oh, man, that's good. Now, how do I do that? I just said it, didn't I? Connect 
What do I need, another verb? Yes? Oh, my word, Holly. What do you want from me? I'm already called the walking thesaurus. I gotta, I gotta give you another, oh, my word. All right. All right, here's how I'm gonna answer that. Thank you, Holly. Did you notice how God actually saves Israel? Did you see it? Watch, it's stunning. By pots and pans. I mean, these are incredibly lethal weapons. Everybody throughout the ancient world and the modern world knows. You fear the pots and pans. Beware of the pots and pans. Especially kids when they bang in your closet at night. Sorry. The 300 go home from this epic battle. Do you see what happens? They go home from this epic battle. 300. The 300. That's probably where... The 300 Spartans came from, I don't know, maybe they might have been inspired by this event. Because it would have been, yes, after this event. The 300 go home from this epic battle having killed no one. No one. <laughs> I mean, look, remember the ratio? The ratio was they got to kill 450 soldiers on a, on a tank. And then watch what happens in verse 21. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled, the army. The Lord set every man's sword, that's the Amalekites, the Midians, the people from the east, against their friend and comrade, against all the army. In other words, God did it. God did it all. The 300 literally stood there and watched what God did. This is so powerful. This is so life-changing. They literally stood there and watched what God did. In Mark's gospel, Peter is the first one to connect with Jesus. Did you know that? He's the first one. Remember, he said those great words. You are the Christ. Don't get too like hung up on Peter because two sentences later, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So that's a whole other story. But he's the first. He's the first one that says, you are the Christ. The second is a Roman warrior. Now, how did he connect to Jesus? This is incredible. How did he connect? How did it happen? How does it happen that your weakness connects to God's strength? Here's how it happened for the centurion. Mark records, he's standing there watching Jesus die. He stands there and watches what Jesus does. By dying. Stands there and watches Jesus kill his sin on the cross. Watches Jesus kill his boasting, his supposed strength on the cross. He watches Jesus kill primal evil. On the cross, he watches Jesus go to battle on the cross and kill all the multi-forms of death in your life, including the physical ones and including the loss that you've experienced, including your sicknesses, all the multi-level many deaths and then the capital D death of physical death and ultimate eternal death. He watches Jesus. He stands 
and watches what Jesus did on the cross. All his fears killed. And standing there in his weakness, watching in his weakness, he connects to Jesus' work on the cross, what Jesus is doing and has done on the cross. And he says, truly this man is the Son of God. How do you survive fear? By connecting your weakness to that. To Jesus' strength. Jesus' salvation. And it releases power. And it releases, you experience God into your life. Amen.